Well, one of the things about new life is we love to celebrate it, and I love to celebrate it because with new life and, and kids, they just like to take everything in. Have you noticed that? Like I have a four-month-old baby, and she just likes to take everything in. And so every morning, my two older kids run in the room, and they say, is Tanavi awake? Is Tanavi awake? And we say, well, she wasn't, but now she is. And then they say, put her on the bed, put her on the bed. And so we take our little four-month-old baby, and we put her on the bed. And at this moment, she has like five people all up in her grill as she just woke up at the crack of dawn, right? And she's looking up, this little four-month-old baby, and she's looking up at all these faces, and we're just like hugging her and touching her face and just doing all these things that you wouldn't do to a normal person, right? I don't think you do that to each other when you wake up in the morning, right? But this is what we do to our little baby, and she's looking up, and she's just taking it all in. And what's funny is there's no skepticism, right? There's no skepticism of saying, like, I think they just want something from me. Like, there's no insecurity from our four-month-old baby of, like, is this, is this just a ploy to, like, get them to like me? Like, she's not thinking any of those things, right? There's no shame. She's not thinking, like, my hair looks really bad right now. Like, it's just doing this thing. I can't get it to go down. She's not thinking any of that. She's just taking it all in. Well, all of us in this room know that, unfortunately, that doesn't last long, right? That as kids get older, as, as people get older, that things that they do, that things that are done to them, that those things pile up, and eventually you feel something called shame. It's shame. And I know there's different kinds of people in this room, different ages. There are kids. There are adults. There's different backgrounds, different personalities, different preferences. But I know one thing we all experience at some point in our life, and it's shame. Maybe some of you feel that shame this morning. That no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, there are things in your life that you would say, if I'm honest, I'm not proud of that. I don't want to talk about that. You come in here today and people ask you about those things. You're like, I'm, I don't feel comfortable talking about that. There's embarrassing things. There's things that we're not proud of. There's things that we try to hide. And it's shame. And you might say, well, why, why talk about this? <laughs> this is the fall kickoff, right? I came for the cake pops. Like, I want to be encouraged. I don't want to talk about my shame. But listen, we need to talk about it because you know this, right? You know that if you only put your best foot forward, if you only show the best parts of you, and you say, these parts I'm going to hide, these parts I'm not proud of over here, I'm not going to let God see those, I'm sure not going to let other people see those, and we hide those things, and we show these things, and we hide those things, and we show these things, and listen, it's exhausting. There's a disconnect, right? There's a disconnect in your life. There's a disconnect from God. There's a disconnect from others, and really, there's a disconnect with yourself, and it's exhausting. Some of you walk in here exhausted because of that shame. And so we want to talk about this morning how Jesus deals with shame, that he wants a better story for you than that, a better story than a disconnected, exhausting shame. Jesus wants that for you. We're going to look at two stories where we see that play out in the Gospels, 
Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be. You can grab a Bible if you have one. Head to Luke 5. You can also look on the screen. And we're just going to read this together starting in verse 1. It says this. On one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, Simon Peter, same guy, he asked him to pull out a little bit from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep and let, your, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. Verse 11, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So in Luke 5, the backdrop is Jesus has been preaching. He started his ministry. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's, he's going after it, right? And as he begins to do that, crowds begin to gather. They're interested in this guy. And so he hops in Peter's boat to address this crowd because it's too large. So he needs to get in the boat and pull back a little bit. So imagine that scene. And it's Jesus with Peter in the boat, and he's teaching. And then in verse 4, he stops to address Peter, and he asks him, Peter, why don't we catch some fish? Now you have to consider this scene. Peter is a fisherman, right? That's what he does. But they've been trying all night, and there's no fish. And it's not just the two of them having this discussion. There's a crowd of people before God and everybody. Jesus is putting Peter on blast, right? He knows he hasn't caught any fish all night. And he's saying, Peter, why don't we do this? Why don't we catch some fish? So you have to consider this scene. Peter is a fisher man, right? Like, he's a man that catches fish. That's what he does, right? And so you come up to Peter, and you're like, hey, what's your name? I'm Peter. Hey, what do you do for a living? I'm a fisherman. Well, hey, how's that working out for you? Well, you know, um, there's not really a lot of them right now, and I'm, I'm trying, but, you know, it's not working out. Like, that had to be a tough moment for Peter. This is who he is, right? It's part of his identity, and it's not working out for him. And this is before a crowd of people. It had to be an embarrassing moment to say and to admit, like, things aren't working out right now, right? Before Jesus and before this crowd. And if I had to guess, in this room, there are people that would say, man, if I'm honest, there's things that are not working out in my life right now. There's things that just aren't working out. Like my family that I, I thought I would have by now, it hasn't come to fruition. My marriage, I mean, we don't connect like we used to. My career, I mean, I thought I would be further along by now. I thought I would have gotten that promotion. I thought I would have gotten that raise. And things aren't working out like we hoped. We think about our kids and we think, man, they won't obey. 
They won't be respectful. Like, is there something I'm doing wrong? If you're in a dating relationship, maybe it's not working out. Maybe if you're honest, you think, man, this dating relationship is chipping away at my integrity. And it's not working out like I'd hoped. You see all that stuff, you see all the stuff that's not working out, and you look at God and you think, God wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Some of you almost didn't come for that reason today. Like maybe you thought about it and you said, you looked at your week, you looked at your life, and you said, you know, there's some things that aren't working out. Like, I don't know if God would want to have anything to do with me. I don't know if these men and women would want to have anything to do with me. And so you thought about, maybe I shouldn't come, but for whatever reason, you made it here this morning. This is what Peter experiences. They let down their nets. They catch all these fish so much that it fills two boats. And when Peter sees this in verse 8, he falls down and tells Jesus. Look at verse 8. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. So Peter looks at Jesus and he says, you don't want to get involved in this. Like, you don't want to have anything to do with me. Depart. And what I love about Jesus is he says, no. Right? No. Like, you're not getting off that easy. No. He says it in verse 10. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. He tells Peter, not only am I not going to leave you, but we're going to partner together to change the world. Listen, there's a part of us in our shame that wants to push others away, that wants to push God away and say, man, you don't want to have anything to do with me. I mean, if you just knew, like, things aren't working out like I had hoped. I mean, it may appear that way. I may can put on a show on Sunday mornings and dress nice and put a smile on it. But if I'm honest, things aren't working out the way I would hope. And if people really knew that about me, depart, isolation. Move away, push away. Some of you, that's where you are this morning. Whatever's not working out, whatever shame you are experiencing, listen, you need to know and you need to see it in the story that Jesus doesn't abandon you. He pulls you close. You see that with Peter. I mean, he goes on to live life with Peter, to do ministry with Peter, to start Christianity with Peter. And that's what I love. You see this in verse 11. Look at the verse. It says they le left everything and followed Jesus. They left everything and followed Jesus. These type of people. And so as you look at the Gospels and you look at the span of, of life and you think about who are the people that Jesus uses? Who are those people? Maybe you look around this room and you're wondering, like, who is he going to use in this room? Surely it wouldn't be me. You need to see this story. You need to see in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus loves to use the broken and the messy. Jesus loves to use the shameful. Notice with Peter, he doesn't just put them off to the side and say, hey, don't mess anything up, right? Because he goes on to mess them, some things up, right? You know the story of Peter? He goes back and forth over and over. It's one of the reasons we can relate to Peter so well, right? Right before the death of Jesus, Peter denies Jesus. He goes back and forth. He doesn't get this thing figured out. It's kind of messy. It's kind of shameful. And Jesus says, you're not going to just stay at the back. You're going to be on the front lines. You're going to help me start this thing called Christianity, called the church. You're going to be a significant part of the kingdom of God in the midst of your mess. You think of a guy like Paul, the Apostle Paul, Romans 7, 
we see Paul talking about this good that he wants to do but doesn't do. This evil that he doesn't want to do, but he keeps doing. And he's wrestling back and forth. The majority of Romans 7 is this. He's wrestling back and forth. This good I want to do, I don't do. This evil that I don't want to do, I keep going back to that. Some of you are thinking, that's my whole life, right? And there's shame in that. He's wrestling with that so much so that at the end of Romans 7, Paul desperately cries out, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He's wrestling with his shame. Peter's wrestling with shame. And yet, these are the type of people that God uses. Peter, the first disciple, the leader of the disciples. Paul writes 75% of the New Testament. So these aren't just guys that Jesus restores. These are guys Jesus empowers. Do you see that? This morning, whatever brokenness you're experiencing, whatever... This is not going right in your life. The things that aren't working out like you'd hoped. You didn't know Jesus doesn't want to just restore you. He wants to empower you, to send you out, to do significant things in the kingdom of God for his glory and for your joy. That that's Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he does. And we're going to see that as we continue. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So verse 12 tells us this is a man full of leprosy. Leprosy is not something we see a lot of today, although it still exists. Uh, but in that day, you would see a lot of it. It would be a common thing to see lepers. And it's, it's a skin condition. It's a debilitating, painful skin condition that has physical and emotional ramifications. Physically, there's red sores that can spread all over your body, that it can get so bad where you lose limbs, that it causes nerve damage. It's debilitating. It's painful. Emotionally, it's not just physical. Like in this day, emotionally, you would have been a social outcast. The majority of the time, you would be living in isolation. You would be banished. Like you couldn't go near that person for the physical ramifications of that, but also religiously, it would make you unclean to touch a person with leprosy. That's the condition of leprosy. Mother Teresa talks about this. She worked with lepers. She said this, The biggest disease today is not leprosy or tuberculosis, but rather the feeling of being unwanted, uncared for, and deserted by everybody. It's interesting, in the National Institute of Mental Health, they did a study in 2011. Here's what they said. I quote, Experience of social rejection represents a distinct emotional experience that is uniquely associated with physical pain. Experience of social rejection represents a distinct emotional experience that is uniquely associated with physical pain. What they found was the emotional can be just as painful as the physical. Do you see that? This is what this Man, that's full of leprosy. This is how he's approaching Jesus. He's physically, he's emotionally at his end. 
And look at the text. It says he falls on his face and says what? Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice about this. He says, I know you can. I know you have the power to. But he just wonders if he wants to. And Jesus says, I will be clean. The word in the original language is thalo, which means to will, to wish, to express a person's desire. That Jesus says, I want to do this, and he heals them. Maybe some of you are here this morning, and you know about Jesus. Some of you have grown up in church. Some of you have heard about Jesus all your life, things like Jesus loves you, Jesus heals your shame, Jesus forgives your sins. And you're thinking to that, and you're listening to me talk right now, and you're thinking, I know all that. I know that. But you look at your brokenness, you look at the things that aren't working out in your life, you look at your shame, and you think, I know those things, but I'm not sure he wants to do those things for me. Does that sound familiar? You question, like, I know Jesus could, but maybe he doesn't want to, because otherwise, why does this frustration continue? Why does this physical ailment continue? Why does this relationship that's broken continue? Why does what's been done to me when I was a little kid, why does that continue to still haunt me today? If Jesus wanted to, he could take that away. And in your honest moment, you may look at God and say, I know you're good. I know you love me. I know you forgive sin. I know you bring healing to my shame. But I'm not sure in this moment if you really want to. And that's where this guy is. He says, I know you can but I don't know if you want to. I love it because Jesus responds and says, I will, I wish, I express this desire to do this, and he heals him. And notice he doesn't just verbally heal him. He touches him, right? You see that? He reaches out and touches a leper. You need to know that that is incredibly significant, that it could have been years, maybe decades, since this man had been touched. I mean, can you even imagine He hasn't been touched by anybody, and the first person he's touched by is the Son of God. And it takes away his leprosy. It's amazing. It's transformative in his life. Do you think Jesus could have healed him without touching him? Yeah. He does it all the time, right? He All the time, Jesus heals people just by his words. All the time, Jesus casts out demons just by his words. Later in this passage, he heals a paralytic by just saying, rise up and walk. He didn't have to touch him, right? He didn't have to do that. He could have healed him by his words, but he gets involved in the mess. He goes near the broken, the shameful. This isn't just Jesus healing a sick man. You think about this? It has more ramifications than that. He's not just healing the sick. He's breaking a social norm. He's ushering in a new norm. Jesus is saying there's a new kingdom where touching someone like this, going near someone like this, doesn't make you religiously unclean. That's the most God-like thing you can do. That's the most Christ-centered thing you can do is go near the brokenhearted. And Jesus is ushering in that new kind of kingdom. You see, the reality is, as some of you look at your life, you may not have a physical disease, but you're limping along, weighed down by shame. Things in your past, habits you hate, addictions that you hide, and they're weighing you down, and you're limping along physically and emotionally, and you're wondering, does Jesus want to heal me? Does Jesus want to come near? Does Jesus want to get involved? 
Listen, you need to know this morning that he wants to set you free, that he desires to make you new. How do I know? How do we know that? Because Jesus doesn't just give us self-help. He gives himself. He gives his very life. He doesn't stay far off. He doesn't keep his distance. He comes down. He enters into human history. He lives the life that we could never live. He lives amongst us. And then he goes to the cross and he willingly lays his life down. Nobody took Jesus' life. He willingly lays it down because he wants to. Because he desires to. He wants to bring you near to himself. That's why he came. That's what he wants to do, even in the midst of your shame. And along the way, he does that. He encounters people like Peter. He encounters the leper. And what you'll see is this is a trend. Verse, 14, verse 15, look at that verse. Verse 15, crowds gather, and he does this again and again and again. He heals their infirmities. Jesus goes on to heal a lot of people later in this passage. He goes to that paralytic, and he heals him. He forgives him of his sin. He enters into that shame. He goes on to heal a man. Uh, he goes on to heal the paralytic, and then he meets with a tax collector. We've talked about this before. It's a tax, tax collector named Levi. But tax collectors at that time were the scum of the earth, right? You know Zacchaeus. You have Levi. These are people you didn't associate with, and Jesus goes near to them. Listen, this is early in Jesus' ministry. He's just getting started. And who are the first people he goes to? The shameful. Over and over and over. This is just Luke 5. The rest of the Gospels, you see Jesus engage people like this, restore people like this, empower people like this. And he goes on to say that. He says, this is why I'm here. Verse 31. Just listen, it won't be on the screen. It says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, this is Jesus. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Listen, this is something Jesus gets criticized over and over and over for. Jesus, why would you hang out with these people? Why would you continue to engage these people? And Jesus says, because I'm like a physician, that this is why I came. These are the people that I came for. So if you think about it, if you're sick and you go to the doctor, if they're a good doctor, like, they don't say, like, oh, no, get away. Oh, gross. Like, don't come near. Like, if you sneeze, they're not like, oh, can you cover your mouth, please? Can you just stand over there while I, I, from afar, observe you and see what's wrong with you and diagnose you that way? That would be a terrible doctor, right? I'm pretty sure that review would end up on Yelp. And they wouldn't get any business after that. Because what do physicians do? They meet with sick people. They get together with sick people. And so Jesus is saying, I'm like that. I'm like a physician. I'm not trying to push sinners away. If you're a mess, that's who I'm looking for. I'm coming for you in the mess. Like Jesus is encountering people, and this is the people he encounters. But notice he doesn't just leave us in the mess. Verse 32 he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus in the mess doesn't just come to you and say, hey, you're sick, it's okay. Put my arm around you, affirm you, encourage you. He doesn't just do that and say, hey, good luck with that. I'll leave you in that mess. I love you and accept you as you are. He doesn't do that. No, he calls them to repentance. 
repentance, that he wants to see you turn away from your brokenness and your shame and your sin, and he wants to see you turn towards him and his righteousness. Repentance. He doesn't leave you in the mess. He calls you to repent from it. So first, we have to acknowledge that something is off. Like, how do you get well? You first acknowledge that you're sick, right? And so listen, I I know as difficult as it is to do that, even in this moment, you're like, ah, that doesn't sound like fun. I don't want to do that. I don't want to acknowledge the ways in which I'm sick, acknowledge my shame. I try not to think about those things. As difficult as that is, that disconnect that we talk about, the only way to heal that, the only way to break free from that is to begin to acknowledge that it's there. To begin to acknowledge there is a sickness, there is pain in my life. And so you need to this morning, you need to stop thinking about whatever you're thinking about. You need to acknowledge your shame. And I don't mean the things that you just uh, say when you stump your toe. I don't mean the the things that just slip out of your mouth, like you say a cuss word or you don't come to church. Like, I'm so shameful about those things. I mean the deeper things. Like the things you try to hide. What are those things? The things that when you are by yourself at night and it's quiet and you don't want to consider those things and it's deeply painful and it's uncomfortable and so you turn to distraction. You turn on the radio. You turn on music. You put on a show, you look up sports, the weather, because you just think, man, anything to do so I won't consider this shame. You have those moments? I want you to think about those moments. What are those things for you? What are those things that if you're honest, you say, I'm trying to hide those things. Like, I don't want to address those things. I was watching uh, Dateline the other night, and... um, There was a lady that was an Olympic runner that they were interviewing. Maybe you saw this story. Uh, But she ran races, was on magazines, was in the Olympics. And she talked about how she had this just idol of success. And that in this one race that she realized she wasn't going to win that race, she was behind like four or five runners. And so she faked an injury. She fell to the ground. She didn't stop there. She faked passing out. They had to wheel her out on a wheelchair. And for a long time, she never even admitted that. And she went on, and she would talk at schools, and she would talk to uh, track teams at schools and encourage them and challenge them. But she talked about how she never dealt with her shame. She said specifically that it grabbed her and it never let go. And the interview went on, and it spiraled out of control. She was married, had a husband, had a kid. She went on to get into prostitution. And just her life just spiraled out of control, and it started with this shame. And they said, like, why didn't you talk to people about this sooner? And she said, I just, I knew people's perception of me. I knew I was trying to put this best foot forward, and I didn't want people to see any of that. And it spiraled out of control. And it was shame. She didn't want to acknowledge it. Listen, that little bit of shame, those pieces in your life that you think, well, just, they're not a big deal. And those are like half poison pills that you swallow every day and every day and every day. And you may get away with that for six weeks. You may get away with that for six years. But eventually, those things come back to haunt you. You need to acknowledge them because we have a Jesus. Listen, we have a Jesus who wants to set you free from that. What are those things in your life? 
Maybe things in your past. You think if people knew this, they wouldn't want to have, wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Things in your present you keep running back to for the millionth time. What are those things for you? You need to acknowledge them because, listen, you need to hear this. God already knows, right? God already knows. He knows all of it, all the parts you try to hide, all the parts that you desperately try to conceal, all the parts that you put over here and you don't want to talk about, that you run away from. God already knows all of it, right? He knows all of it. And he doesn't run away. He comes to that you're the kind of person that he's drawn to, that he wants to restore you and empower you. That's so much that he came for you, that he died for you, that he rose for you. That that's Jesus. That's the Jesus we encounter in Scripture. That while we were weak, Romans 5, when we were dead, Ephesians 2, in our darkest moments, Jesus pursues us. He gives his life for us. And so I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you're dealing with shame of your past or your present, but you need to know God knows it all. He knows it all. He loves you, and he wants to pursue you and restore you and empower you. You need to acknowledge it. You need to acknowledge that you're sick. We have a God who wants to transform that and change that in your life. The reality is I know that as much as we've driven this home this morning, some of you still aren't sure. You're thinking, yeah, this, this sounds like hypothetically this may work but it's too difficult, it's too uncomfortable, I'm not going to do that. And you think, yeah, we'll, we'll finish up in here. This, this awkward moment's going to pass. We'll eat lunch and we'll move on. We'll watch football. And I'll be able to distract myself. And in those moments when it's dark again and there's things I want to hide and don't want to talk about, I'll just turn on that show. I'll just put on the music. I'll just go to this person. We'll just go to this place and we'll just put our best foot forward and we'll just continue in that path. Maybe some of you are thinking, like, if I'm honest, that's where I'm headed. Listen, I would say to you, you need to know that if you continue with that trend, that you're going to continue to experience that disconnection from others, from God, from yourself. And God wants a better story for you than that. Jesus wants a better story for you than that. I'm a father of three. Um, and if you really wanted to hurt me, don't do this. But if you really wanted to hurt me, you would go after my kids and you would sit them down and you would say, you know, your daddy doesn't really love you all the time. Like, it's only on your best days when you look pretty, when you're obeying perfectly, that he loves you then. But just so you know, if you ever screw this thing up, <laughs> that he's, he's going to discard you. Just so you know, if you have a bad day, he's going to say, you don't belong with his family anymore. The most hurtful thing you could do to me is go to my kids and convince them for one second that that's true. That their dad doesn't love them on their worst day, only their best days. And so I've shared this story before, but my daughter, who was at the time five years old, um, one Saturday morning she woke up at 5 a.m., which if you're a parent, you know for some reason that happens. Monday through Friday, it's like 7 a.m. It's like, get out of bed. It's like pulling teeth. But Saturday morning, it's like 5 a.m. They're gung-ho, right? Ready to attack the day. And so this happened on this Saturday. She's five years old. She wakes up at 5 a.m. 
And it was just a tough day, right? Like by 11 o'clock, she was just done. She was tired. She wasn't obeying. It was just a tough, tough day. And so my wife and I look at each other and we say, Neela, let's take some rest time in your room. Like let's take a little time out and kind of reset the day, right? And so she does that. And I go back in my office and I'm sitting there looking over my notes for my sermon. And about 10 minutes later, my daughter comes in and she says to me, hey, daddy, I want you to read this. And so I grab it. She's five. She's just learning how to write words on a page. And so she gives me this piece of paper and she says, uh, read this. And I read it and it says, Neela is not. And so I'll look at that and I say, okay, Neela is not. Like, Neela, what does that mean? And she looks at me and she says with a sad face, Neela is not in the family. And so immediately I was just like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you guys were disappointed in me and like sent me to my room. Like, maybe I'm not in the family anymore. As a parent, you love to hear that from your five-year-old daughter, right? Like, I'm doing everything right. And so immediately I called for backup, right? I'm like, we need to have a family meeting. And so my wife, Jaya, I'm like, come in here. We got to have a talk. Like, this is our five-year-old daughter saying she's not in the family anymore. We got to figure this thing out. And so I called my wife in, and I pulled my daughter close, and I just said to her, Neela, you're in our family, You'll always be in our family. You'll never leave our family. Like even when you're 25 and you get married or 35 or 45, you'll always be in our family, even if you don't want to be. That you share my last name, that you're in our family, that on your best day and on your worst day, you're my daughter and I love you. You need to know, as you look at Jesus Christ this morning, as you look at God the Father, that he's a way better father than I am, right? He's a way better father than I am. And so he looks at you even in the midst of your shame and your brokenness. And if you know Jesus, he says to you, you're my child and I love you. On your best day, on your worst day, he looks at you and says, you're my child I love you. You're always going to be in this family. What would it be like if we really believed this? Do you think about that? Like, what if that wasn't just a cute story to tell? What would it be like if we really believed this? If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus, what would it be like if you walked in this kind of freedom? That you said, yes, I have shame my past, and my present. Yes, there are things that aren't working out in my life like I'd hoped. But even in the midst of that, and I can take freedom in, satisfaction in, that even in the midst of that, in that worst day, that Jesus is still there, he knows all of it, and yet he says, you're my child, I love you. What kind of freedom would you walk in if you had that, if you walked like that? That would be amazing if a group of people came together and they said, man, Jesus knows us on our worst day, on our best day. He loves us. He died for us. He rose again for us. And so we have an incredible authenticity as a people that sets us apart from everybody else. What would that be like? If you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, what would it be like this morning to look at this Jesus? I don't know the Jesus you've looked at before. 
the perceptions that you've had of Jesus, what you've heard about Jesus growing up, what you thought you knew about Jesus. But you need to see that Jesus is a God who enters into your shame, who enters into your mess. He says, I'm coming for you in it to restore it, to redeem it, and to empower you through it. That's the Jesus we encounter in Scripture. That's the Jesus you need to encounter this morning. What would it look like if you stopped making excuses and you said, Jesus, I'm going to throw up empty hands of faith and I'm going to give my life to you because I want to experience this freedom for the first time. So I don't know if you grew up in church. I don't know if this is the first time you've heard about Jesus. I don't know if you're thinking through, I know all these things. This sounds great but I'm not sure if I really want to walk in this and believe this and live this functionally in my life. You need to know this morning, God is inviting you to respond to this Jesus, not just on your best day, but today. And maybe that's your worst day, and he's inviting you to respond, to set you free from shame, to pursue you in that, to restore you, and to empower you to do significant things in the kingdom of God. That's our Jesus. Let's talk to him right now. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I do thank you that we can trust in.